1: Backcountry.com is an online outdoor gear and apparel retailer carrying thousands of brands and products for mountain biking and your everyday outdoor lifestyle. Not only does Backcountry have the widest assortment of gear and apparel, but the heart and soul of the company lies with their Backcountry gearheads. These gearheads are former pro athletes, Olympians, and all-around experts that are available 24-7 by phone, email, and chat for one-on-one service, product recommendations, and to ensure you have everything you need for your next outdoor adventure. Go to www.backcountry.com slash singletracks and use the code singletracks15 to get 15% off your first purchase. Some exclusions apply. That's backcountry.com. Check the show notes for the link and coupon code. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is Alistair Backett. Alistair is a mechanical engineer and bike race mechanic based in the United Kingdom. His firm Redburn Design helps small bike brands expand their product range through innovative and award-winning product development and manufacturing process refinement. Listeners may be familiar with one of Alistair's most recent design projects, the new 161 Enduro bike from the Privateer brand. Thanks for joining us, Alistair.
0: Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
1: So you've worked with a lot of different bike companies over the years. How did you get started in the bike industry?
0: Yeah, I I guess my, like you say, my my, my background is mechanical engineering. And um, I guess my first big break or introduction into the the industry was when I, I, I I I agreed to help a a buddy of mine. I guess acting as a as a mechanic or driver or whatever way you want to look at it. Um, so I'd 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 spent a lot of time growing up riding bikes with Ben Reed, who lived just a couple of miles away from me here in Northern Ireland. Um, so he kind of he you know I think in 2007 he'd had a really good season and he'd realized he needed somebody to come on the road and help him. You know he'd had a few different people helping him over the years, but uh, he wanted somebody that he could really I guess take on to, you know, full-time or whatever way you you look at it. So, uh, yeah, so that he, he asked if I wanted to do that and, and yeah, I jumped at the chance to, to go and do that. And, uh, I guess that was, yeah, my, my way in uh, for, for a better way of putting it to, to the, the, the industry that we're in today. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What was that after you had finished your studies in mechanical engineering or was this before and kind of motivated you to, to get into, to that particular field?
0: This was probably yeah two or three years afterwards. So I I finished my my education and I was a bit burnt out with the whole engineering thing at that point because it was you know the college was quite intense. And after that, I just wanted any job really that got me involved in bikes. So I I I got a got a job at a few local bike shops and eventually got a you know got a job working for Chain Reaction Cycles. And if you you know coming from Northern Ireland, there weren't really a whole lot of other opportunities if you wanted to work with bikes. So I, I did that for a couple of years and then that's when. Um, that's when the the opportunity with Ben came about. Um, so I think I did two or three years of of work after college, and then yeah, I don't know. It was probably around two thousand seven that, that Ben and I had the had the discussion, and and from that point, yeah, I packed up my bags and off we went in a little <laughs> Fiat Ducato van, and we started driving around Europe and and uh, living the living the van life I suppose is what they call it these days isn't
1: it yeah yeah well I imagine you saw a lot of opportunities and and got a lot of ideas while you were on the road with Ben right
0: yeah well I think back then I didn't know yeah I didn't know what I wanted to do so I was, you know if an opportunity popped up to go and travel or learn to be a mechanic or whatever I was like yeah look I'll give that a go And, and I you know I wasn't by all by any stretch of the imagination a a really top end mechanic at that point you know I kind of once I once I'd agreed to go and help him I thought well I should really try and hone my skills so I had I I guess I had a couple of months to to you know learn how to do those bits I didn't know how to and but yeah when we were on the road and and at the races you know as, as a as a fan of of downhill at the time like it was really cool to go and and be at those races you know I'd only, I'd only seen them you know i'd only seen them on dvds you know and sprung dvds or earth or whatever it was you know and and i suppose at that stage like some of the the online websites were really like starting to cover the racing as well but to go and be there and see all the racers and see the the trucks and everything it was a real like you know thrown in at the deep end but it was really cool and yeah you you, you know some of the guys i met throughout the course of the four or five years doing that, you know, I still work with those guys directly or indirectly now, you know, and you make a lot of connections, you see a lot of things and it was, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It was, a I, I guess I was nervous cause I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't have, um, I guess, described myself as a big traveler beforehand, you know, I, I hadn't, you know, uh, but yeah, I really, you know, just, it turned out to be really, really worthwhile and, and I'm glad I did it uh, and yeah it's it, a lot of the stuff I learned I then still stands me in good stead now um with the business so yeah good yeah. good good way in. and 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 I know you know it's funny I get that question a lot you know how to how, to, how do you get into the industry that we're in and you know everybody's story is different and it's i don't know how to you know how do you offer advice to someone that says hey i want to <laughs> i want to work in the bike industry i'm not lo- i'm not really sure you know, yeah. I, you know <laughs> I, I just happen to be in the right place at the right time and i think a lot of people maybe here and have, have a similar story so yeah tough
1: well in 2018 you started your own firm redburn design what inspired you to make that leap so
0: I guess my job at the time was changing, you know, the company had just been bought over by its competitor and I could see a lot of changes happening that I wasn't really all that stoked with. and. I guess deep down, I thought, well, you know, I, I guess I was looking for other opportunities and I didn't know, you know, I've always thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have independence and work for yourself? But I'd never, you know, I hadn't really spent any time actually pursuing that. You know, I was just, en- I was enjoying my work, you know, and, and you know, the process that I was going through. But, it, you know, whenever the company got bought over, I thought, nah no, this isn't really, you know, this is not looking too rosy for me in the next couple of years. And, and I guess I wanted to try and progress and keep, you know, keep progressing. I I felt like I'd been progressing quite a lot in my career up until that point. And all of a sudden it was as if someone was closing the doors and I thought, no, this Mm -hmm. isn't, this isn't right. So I need to find something else to do. And I guess, you know, my experience of trying to get into, you know, the bike industry from an employee, you know, from a career point of view was, you know, coming from Northern Ireland, there really isn't a whole lot of opportunity. So I guess a part of me always thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to try and do something yourself and build a, build a business that allowed other people a way in you know or an alternative if they wanted to start working with bikes that didn't mean they had to move to a different country or it didn't mean they had to you know had to work for just this one company that existed so that was that was a you know there were a few I guess aspects or elements of it that were that were driving it and and I I just thought you know what the time was right I'd had a really good couple of years Uh, you know I was working at Nukeproof for the for the the seven years leading up to that time and I think you know I, I felt like I'd Done a good job up until that point. You know, your first couple of years of any new job, you're you're very much winging it and trying to learn as you go. Right. But I, you know, I, I sort of felt like, okay, I finally think I've not that I've cracked it, but I know what I know what I'm doing now. And and I I don't know. I just thought now's the time to go and try something different. And yeah, so I I just thought let's I'll start my own thing and I'll try and you know I guess. Do similar rules to what I had been doing because you know at Nukeproof I was not you know I, I started as a design engineer, mechanical engineer, but I very quickly then moved into a whole pile of different rules. And because of the size of it because it was a small brand you know you had to wear multiple different hats and I think that then geared me up I felt like I had a skill set that I could offer to other companies that maybe needed a, a bit of this or a bit of that or advice on this or some design here so you know that was I guess the the, the thought process behind it so so yeah I had a notice in and, and and started started Redburn Design and I think you know from a life point of view I was you know I had a young family. I was, you know, my, my life had changed in the last, you know, the 10 years previous where I was kind of young, single, you know, had the the scope to go and travel and do all these things. And, you know, life had, had changed a lot. And I think I, I kind of fancied a, a change and a start over. Um, yeah. So that was, yeah, I guess there were a couple of factors, Jeff, that really steered towards that, that end goal.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what are some of the most interesting or rewarding projects you've worked on? so far with Redburn or even at your previous brands
0: yeah well i guess the so pre, you know, prior to to leaving and starting redburn i think the biggest you know the most rewarding thing that we'd done was being involved in you know when I was at Proof being involved in I guess the whole process of whenever they decided that they wanted to bring Sam Hill on as as you know one of their athletes and that was you know an incredible process to go through Haven't been you know like most of us are you know a massive Sam Hill fan you know to be told okay right he's going to be potentially if, if everything goes well he's going to ride one of our bikes and he's going to ride you know sign for the team and hopefully go and try and you know put some really good results in so that was a lot of pressure for a young you know a young engineer who'd, who'd only done a couple of years and was quite green to the whole thing and and you know the process wasn't it wasn't easy and you know that was kind of one of the first bikes that I'd really you know, designed from, from, from scratch, you know, along with one other engineer like the two of us had really put a lot of time into it. And, and all of a sudden, you know, they're saying, right, this bike's going to go to, to Sam Hill to test. And if he, if he likes it, <laughs> then he's going to sign the deal. And, you know, that was, so I think, you know, and then obviously he went on to have success on that bike and, you know, that was the team's first, I think it was the team's first actual world cup win in, in downhill Um, So that that whole process was really cool to be involved with, Um, again, prior to, to what I did. But I suppose, you know, since starting Redburn... Yeah, I've been involved with a couple of projects that have been really exciting and, and challenging at the same time. I'm I'm still working on a lot of projects that haven't made the light of day. I guess it's the nature of the cycle industry. There's a lot of things you can't, you know, you can't really talk about until they're, they're through. But, you know, I, I was involved with uh, Forbidden Bike Company, you know, with, with Owen at the very start of getting that up and running. And, you know, I'm quite proud of being involved to get those guys, you know, or to help those guys, Um from a design and an idea into a, a business that was essentially operating and, and ordering frames and you know shipping those all around the world to different customers. So that was that was quite rewarding um, from from my side of things. And and yeah, like the, the privateer projects have been good as well. It's cool to see guys that you know were not involved in mountain bikes. You know, in, in bike design. You know, they obviously have a background in other products in in this in the same industry, but you know, to be involved with that and see that reach the light of day. Like that's, it's, it's, it's all rewarding. You know, I think most of the projects we work on, I find quite rewarding because they're, you know, you're, you're creating something that didn't exist, you know, six months or 12 months prior. So yeah, it's, it's good. I, I enjoy it, you know, but not every, pro- you know, not every project's as fun as the others, but you know, you gotta, you gotta take the rough with the smooth. Don't you?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, do you spend much of your time working with athletes or is it more with brand managers who have an idea of the product that they want, or or is it kind of a combination of the two?
0: Yeah, I suppose it's a combination. At the minute, it's mostly working with, yeah, essentially a brand or product manager, um, or depending on the size of the company, it could be working with the boss of the company, Yeah, depending what they want, you know. And, but generally, and generally, we work with sort of smaller to medium-sized businesses where, you know, like... You don't necessarily have just one dedicated person that your is your contact point you could be talking with their marketing guys, their product guys their tech mechanics whatever you know so it's it's kind of interesting and then if they have athletes that are involved then you'll have some yeah for sure we have some interaction with them it's not as much as you know and i and I think you know maybe i'm speaking out of turn here for for all businesses, but in any engineering department or design department within any bike company you know they yes they have a whole fleet of athletes but i i feel like they're a lot of the time underutilized as well yeah just more so as well because they're not always as accessible as as you would like that was that's something i've experienced at a few different um companies and in a few different jobs in the past and 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 i still still today as as redburn goes forward it's the same you know it, it can be difficult to really get the maximum out of the athletes that are in really, you know, that are related to the projects they're working on. But you know, you've got a, it's a, it's a global, I guess, process. You've got to speak to everybody and, and get data from everybody and, and try and interpret that your, your own way. So, um, but I would say a good, you know, the, the vast majority of my time is dealt with, um, it's spent dealing with product managers or brand managers, whoever that, that on, on the project and its details. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the privateer 161. So Privateer is is a fairly new brand. Do they have as like a small company, I wouldn't imagine they would have their own, uh, designer engineer necessarily. Right. Is that kind of why you're brought in?
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think, you know, they, they already manufacture and and, uh, retail products in different areas, you know, they, but as far as mountain bikes go they didn't they didn't you know they were starting essentially with a clean slate now the the company's made up of a lot of bike riders which is a, okay it's a good start but it doesn't mean it's made up of, of engineers and designers and i think f- from from their point of view they wanted to i guess get an end product that they felt wasn't within their grasp easily you know to start the process of going out and creating your own team of engineers that can deliver such a thing is is time-consuming and costly and I guess they you know they they're quite forward-thinking in terms of well let's get the right people that are available and bring those in and you know rather than try and I guess hire and upskill within you know they, they do that as well but I think you know it's, it's a clever business I, I think it's clever the way they look at things and they you know and, and it has meant that they've potentially fast-tracked the project to production much sooner than they could had they chosen a different path if that makes sense so yeah so they they got in touch probably probably two years ago or not far off two years ago and and we started I guess communicating on well what is the project and what do you want to do and what's the end goal and, and that's where yeah and you know Redburn's basically been involved in the in in most of the elements of the design and the you know all the engineering behind it all um yeah whereas and then those guys essentially their background is in sales and marketing and distribution and all the other bits that go with it so they you know they've um, they handle all that stuff and i try not to i try not to worry about it at all which is quite you know it's nice as well you know coming from a background where you had to worry about everything now i can just focus on on just the bits that they need added to it which is yeah i think it's a good way to work
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense too because you know you don't want to figure out how to design a bike sort of along the way. Like you want to start with something that's, that's good and, and have an experienced designer like yourself. So how much, how much of the design, um, is, is your own thing versus what the brand comes to you with? And, you know, if you can talk about that specifically with privateer, like Do they come to you and just say, "Make us something awesome," or do they say, "We've got very specific (laughs) ideas about we want the bike to do this, this, and this, and have sort of these broad specs"? Like, how do you usually start that conversation?
0: Yeah, and and it's very, you know, it's different with each. Client, I guess as well. You know, some people have got more of an idea of what they want or what they think they want, and, and others are, are a bit more broad. You know, I haven't had someone come to me yet who knows exactly what it is they want and say, This is what we want. You know, nobody nobody so far has said, Yeah, yeah, no, we categorically we know this is exactly everything that we want delivered. So and I guess if they knew that, you know, maybe they could do it themselves. But um with the privateer guys, like they, they had yeah, they did have ideas on what was important to them as a business and you know, I guess then it was a really good process you know they they we, yeah, I spent a lot of time flying across to the office and spending time with their team and I, I guess I, I got to learn a little bit about their the way they operate their business so I could start to understand what the customer what their customer might want and yeah they had some they had some interesting criteria that that definitely guided the the project along but a lot of it was, okay, well, can you help us fill in the blanks? You know, use your experience, help us fill in the, the bits that are missing. And then we, you know, we, we kind of review that and and, see, and revise it over and over again. So that, which is kind of how the process, how the process went. So they, you know, with the 161 project, they, you know, they didn't know what travel they wanted it to be, but they, they start with, okay, we want, you know, relatively long travel. We want a 29er, but it needs to be a bike that can pedal up all day and, you know, is, is built for just rallying down. You know, they, they knew what they, sometimes it's easier to start with what, what don't you want? And then that kind of eliminates all that sort of stuff, and then you're left with okay, well, these are the options of what you could end up with, uh, essentially. And then other criteria heavily affect it, such as you know your target cost or your target weight or the way it should function. You know what what features on the bike are important to you, and and what ones are maybe less so important. And it's not you're not I guess you're not asking what's less important, but you're saying okay, well, all of these come with a price you know not necessarily a monetary price but a, a penalty of time or weight or investment or tooling or whatever it might be and so I spent a lot of time sharing my experience and knowledge with them on all of those aspects and then it was almost a you know a, an exercise of going through well okay if we if we apply you know if we want this feature well, that's going to add, you know, $50 to the unit price, and that's going to add £150 or whatever, you know, equates to to the customer. And do they, if you were a customer, would you rather spend that £150 on that feature or would you rather save it or spend it on something else? And that was very much the process that we went through with, with the privateer, privateer team. And, and it, it, they had a really good way of looking at it. They were very much coming from the customer's point of view rather than what I've, you know, I guess a trap I've fallen into in the past. And I think a lot of design departments or product managers fall into is trying to design a product for, to to fit in with a certain range that you're expected to have because the industry tells you that that's what you're, you know, you're expected to have or the, you know, the magazines they're doing a review and it needs to be this price and it needs to have this tire and it needs to be that amount of travel. So actually they, they really, sat down with me and they said okay well we think this is important to the customer and this is the customer that we're trying to i guess design a product for and mm-hmm. and you know this is the problem that we're trying to solve with it and, and so it was a it was a nice process to go through for sure and and we continue to go through that process on on further product development as well and and i think it's it's good because you can start to see them does it developing a, a style as a as a as a company or as a brand, um, that, that customers will then become familiar with. And, you know, I guess there was no point in designing a product the same as everything else because, you know, why wh- why bother, you know, making the same thing if you can, you know, if you've got the opportunity to make something unique or or different that solves a problem. So so that's kind of where that where that came from, yeah.
1: Yeah. With all those constraints and considerations and trade-offs, I mean, it sounds like your job is mainly solve problems, right? Like you just figure out like, how do we, how do we do this? Like there's, there's so many competing things that, like you said, you're trying to, you know, keep the weight down, but price has to be reasonable and it still has to perform and
0: exactly and i and i I think that you know whether that's just the job of an engineer to be a problem solver but i think within the bike industry that you know that's what you learn that's what all these larger companies have learned through their process nothing you know there is no such thing as perfection you can't just have everything perfect from the start the way that you want it because there's always got to be a payoff with something else you've got to you've got to weigh up one one thing over another and there's always going to be compromise and and I guess especially for a young a young company that are trying to to get into develop their first bike, you know, without the experience that we brought, you know, there's no doubt they would have got to the end goal eventually, but you know, how long would it have taken, you know, how many mistakes would they have made along the way? It's right. not to say that they don't still make mistakes with, with our help, you know, everybody, you know, we're, we're constantly learning as well as we go and every new project that we do, I suppose that's part of, I guess, the uniqueness of bringing a company like Redburn in because you, you know, we're developing projects for different clients and we're experiencing a whole different host of problems and and hopefully that actually allows us to then broaden our experience and learn which we can then i guess use as we move forward for for other companies that that might come to us um so that 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 works works both ways, I guess. But yeah, there, it, it's all, it's very much about problem solving, and that's why I think I spend a lot of time at the start trying to really dig in and and almost challenge them on, on on their design brief and say, well, why do you want it? You know, you've told me you want the customer to spend this much money on this bike, or you've told me you want it to function in this way. Well, wh- why is that? What you know, and I'm constantly asking why to try and make sure that. Either they really feel confident that that is what they want or or to highlight that maybe there's an alternative that they haven't considered and might be better or worse. And- so I think that process is good. And, and, and that happened very much with the 161 and it, you know, that chopped and changed quite a lot as we went through the early stages of development and which I think those guys would look at now and go, yeah, that was, I'm glad we did that. I think that was a good process to go through and it saves you. I guess it's, it's slow and fast out. Like any good cyclist would tell you, you know, you, you got to put the time in at the start and really try and think, you know, 18 months to 24 months ahead. And that, you know, and that's going to help you make better decisions at the start um, or put you certainly closer to the right path at the start, which is what we try and do.
1: Yeah. Well, why did you choose to go with the horsed link design for the 161 over a single pivot or another sort of suspension configuration?
0: Yeah, I guess the the, the main factor in, in choosing that design was one of, well, we've got a, in the design brief, there were a couple of things that We're going to be quite not risky, but progressive. So they, you know, they felt quite strongly that we want quite a progressive geometry. So there was going to be quite a big change there. You know, they wanted to have you know different um, chainstay lengths. You know, weight distribution was important. All these things were starting to add up that were important to them. And you know, when I said, "Well, okay, have you got any idea what sort of suspension layout you want or don't want?" You know, and that was they had less of a they had less of a preference on that. And I thought, right, okay, well. With all of these other things that you're asking of it, if we, you know, if we select the horse link design, that actually simplifies things slightly and allows us to really concentrate, you know, I guess two benefits. One, it allows us to concentrate on the bits that you've highlighted as really important to the end, you know, the end product. Mm -hmm. And it also, I guess allows or will hopefully allow the customer to feel more familiar you know it is a really commonly used suspension platform as we all know it's used on on loads and loads and loads of different bikes and and i guess a lot of customers feel familiar on it it is an easy bike to get on and feel familiar with versus you know uh something with a vpp or or maybe a high pivot bike you know where the characteristics when you get on feel a bit alien with the the privateer you know i guess we wanted the bike to feel as familiar as it could because we were going to probably have quite an out there seat tube angle or quite out there geometry you know reach numbers and so i guess a lot of it was trying to make sure that let's not let's not create something that's a complete you know has too much going on and too many changes because that might not be the right the right thing doesn't mean that you know, we won't look at different suspension designs in the future, but certainly for this application, it felt like the right way to go. And, you know, it's, it's easier to, to tune the shock to get the performance right based off that. And, you know, that, that layout as well. So there were, there were quite a lot of benefits to sticking with the horse link. You know, nobody wanted to do it because it's quite hard to make a bike look aesthetically different. But when you use the same layout as everybody else that, you know, that was obviously a compromise that was, was going to have to be potentially made as you get with any any choice any design choice on any bike you're gonna have to you know it's very i guess it's very rare to come up with a bike design that functions really well has really good geometry and looks completely unique there are you know there are really not many bikes that do that today
1: yeah well you mentioned the the varied chainstay links on the 161 and that's that's not super common on mountain bikes so what what are your thoughts on that the advantages and and why why don't we see more brands doing that
0: I think it's becoming more common you know the biggest the the main reason you don't see it is because it is difficult to do I mean from a manufacturing point of view there's a few different ways you can design the bike around it the simpler way and and the way the 161 is done is you do you just physically have got different length seat stays and chain stays the factories don't like that because it's more tooling more investment you know and that that's a that's a decision that the privateer guys had to make you know do we feel strongly enough about this to take on the additional investment to open more tooling for all the different chain stays and seats days? And yes was the answer for them. There are other ways around doing it where you don't necessarily have to do that, but it's all that's all a trade-off. And I, I think the biggest challenge from an engineering and design point of view to not do that is you've got to essentially design you know, if you're making four sizes of bike, you've got to design four different bikes because this susp- is, you know, the kinematics, everything, you've, you know, it's all levers. And if your, if your chainstay lever is longer on one bike than the other, well, that's going to affect, you know, there's a whole pile of knock on. I guess, effects uh, and and some of them, you know, sometimes you get a knock on effect that actually plays, you know, plays to your strengths and works out better off. But in the, you know, in, I guess with a larger bike, with a longer lever, you know, you maybe don't want it that longer lever to give you, you know, it's going to affect the shock differently. And so it just requires more, I guess, more engineering work and more customization on shock tunes and that kind of thing. So it's, a, it just complicates the process. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. It doesn't mean it's the right, you know, it doesn't mean it's the wrong decision. Um, If I, the way I look at it, you know, and I think traditionally when people design bikes, they try and start with, okay, let's get the suspension system dialed in and then we just make our four different front triangles and away we go. And that that is the way that I guess for a long time bikes have been done, Um, especially with aluminium bikes, purely because of the way you've got to uh, join all the tubing together. But I think now, you know, Weight balance has become more of a prominent aspect of design and people are you know, riders are getting more switched on to how important, you know, weight distribution is within a bike and its handling. And and the only way to really, I guess, not refine that, but to to really get your weight distribution the way you want across all sizes is to is to obviously change the position of where your where your axles are in, in relation to where the rider's center of mass is. So um, we do it with front triangles. What, you know why not why not do it with the rear center as well and uh, so I, I can see a lot more people adopting it and it, there'll be I'm sure lots of different ways that people will adopt doing it um but yeah I, I, I still think it, it is beneficial to the rider ultimately um and it means that somebody that's you know an extra large guy it's six foot plus you know, is getting a similar ride experience to, you know, a smaller person on a, on a small or an extra small frame, which is the way you want, you know, you, you want everybody to get a similar experience from the bike or whatever the product is that you're, you're, you're bringing to market.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm curious to know how closely you work with, uh, suspension engineers when designing a new frame, are there like just specs available? Like you go to Fox and Rockshox and you can just kind of get all the data that you need or, do you spend more time, you know, communicating directly and and really like getting, I guess, support from them, for lack of a better term, in, in terms of like making sure that everything is optimized and dialed for your design?
0: Yeah, you do. Yeah, you definitely got to you've got to work with the suspension companies because there's only so many different variations that they can. You know, economically produce and manufacture mm-hmm. the way we, we tend to do it is that we'll, we, you know, we'll come up with a, a set of kinematics that we think is a really good starting point. We'll then, you know, we'll communicate that at some point. We'll get to the point where we think, you know what? We've ticked all the boxes. We've done all our clearance checks. You know, the shocks are going to fit. We're not going to have any interferences when we turn this into a 3D model. You know, we'll then communicate with. You know the engineers at at shocks or Fox or whatever can create whoever the the shock partner is going to be. You know, assuming you know who the shock partner is going to be for that particular brand at that time. You know, there's all these different steps you got to go through, and um you'll basically supply them with a like here's our here's our 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 initial draft of of our kinematics. You know, this is and you'll give them an outline of what the bike's supposed to be and how it's supposed to ride, and and then they'll basically give you some feedback on that and suggest, they might suggest some some tunes that, you know, are standard tunes. I guess every, you know, all those shock manufacturers, they've got a set of base compression and rebound tunes that you can generally configure easily. Sometimes if you've got something completely out there, they might need to develop, uh, you know, a, like a line extension just for your bike. That comes with its own complications because, in order, you know, you're asking those guys to invest time in making a product really unique, just for your bike. So you've got to make sure you're ordering enough of it to, to verify all that. So there's all these other complications that as a smaller brand, you don't always have access to all of them, but you've got to start somewhere. Um, So with the privateer, you know, we kind of work closely with, with rock shocks at the time and, and, tried to, I guess, work out. Yeah, okay. They've made some suggestions on tunes that are available, and I guess technology as well as it moves on quite quickly. You know, new options become available. So, um, like I've got quite a good relationship with with the guys at Rock Shocks in terms of, of shock tuning. You know, from previous jobs, and and that that definitely helps you get to a a better point. You know, a better starting point, essentially. But I guess a, a lot of it, you know, comes down to the feel that the brand wants from that bike. You know, some you might have two completely different riders or two maybe journalists that are both reviewing the bike. They might both feel different things. They might both ride in different ways and want different things from that bike. So I guess that's where the job of a product manager comes in. In my experience to, to define the ride characteristics of their frame that they want, you know, it it might not be perfect for everybody, but you know, you need to feel, and, and this, this is something that I learned at Nukeproof. You know, we had to, really decide well, what's important to us what way do we like to ride and what way do we hope that our customers will like to ride and then you design a shock tune around that uh, and and the only way to do that is really is ride testing the bike over and over on different trails with different shock tunes and, and i guess trying to validate yeah this is what we thought is correct or no we may need, we need to make some changes but you know the guys at fox and rock shocks are they obviously they specialize in this they're so good at it that and and over time they begin you know you, you build a relationship and they start to know you know your preference in terms of riding style or what you expect from the bike and they can almost you know without even having seen the bike or ridden it they can you know nine times out of ten say ah do you know what I think this tune's going to work for you and you, you go and test it and you know they'll throw a few d- dummies in there as well just to make sure you're not just saying yes for the for the, <laughs> for the easy life but generally it's a yeah it is a it is a very much a two- way Uh, working relationship to get the best out of it but you know i would say like shock tunes and shock technology is is it's evolving so so quickly that it's quite a it's important that you you have that relationship otherwise you'll you could end up with a a bike design that's based around an old shock you know i say old shock the shock might be a year old and it's already been replaced by something that's improved or better or a new you know a new way of tuning it has become available and actually that would have worked really well for this project so yeah, it's a, a never-ending search, I guess, for for performance.
1: Yeah, you make a really good point, too, about understanding the customer, the rider that you're trying to target with a particular bike. And, you know, I I know plenty of journalists who I respect and I know they're great product testers. And, you know, they'll say, wow, this, this bike is amazing, I love this bike. And I'll ride the same one and say, eh, I didn't really like it. But that's not to say that they were wrong and that I'm right, that's just to say everybody's different shape and size and has a different style and all of those things um, contribute. And so, yeah, really understanding who you're going for, I think, um, obviously, you're going to be more successful.
0: It's like that discussion about, you know, designing bikes for World Cup athletes, you know, and if we design the best bike that we can for that World Cup athlete, well, you know, there aren't very many customers that are expecting the same performance from their bike as Aaron Gwynn is or Luke Bruni or so, you know, so if you design everything based on just what they want, well, you're going to end up with a bike that isn't always going to work that well for the people that are, you know, working hard to pay to buy those bikes and prop your company up. So you've always, I guess you've always got a balance that somehow it doesn't mean you ignore what the world cup athletes do you know they're they're pushing the product to you know beyond the limits quite often and and i think that's it's important to gather that information but yeah i guess in my experience you've got to be mindful of who's the person that's going to buy the bike and what should they or what you know what do they expect from it and what would benefit them yeah
1: yeah well, switching gears a little bit, I, I want to know um, how you feel about long, low, and slack enduro bikes. And obviously, everybody wants a bike that's going to, you know, climb well enough and, and descend really well. Are there certain parts of that trifecta that you think we can keep pushing in terms of getting, you know, longer or lower or slacker, um, or are there some of those that are probably pretty good where they're at right now?
0: Yeah, I guess in my opinion, you know, you're always going to have these outliers that try and push things. And I think that's a good thing because it it allows other people to sit back and observe and go, well, they've pushed it pretty far. I'm not sure, you know, but you know, if, if, if everybody sat and didn't push the envelope, you know, you wouldn't get anywhere eventually, you know, you would take a lot longer to get to the end goal. So I think that's, that's good. I do think, you know, my in my in my experience i think we reached this with downhill a couple of years ago we like you know and again when i was when i was at nukeproof we we tried a lot of different things and i I think we reached the sweet spot in terms of geometry with downhill um enduro being i guess a younger sport and the development is obviously much more rapid because the demand you know the sport's growing the competitive side of it's growing much quicker and, and it's and i guess it's more it's a step closer to mass market as well you know with with bikes that you know, you or I would go out, and it's the bike you would spend probably you know ninety percent of your time riding. Um, in terms of geometry, I'm, I, I, I don't I don't know if we've reached the the limit of or the the optimum that's there yet, but it's hard to define. That's where I think the the weight distribution for me that's where where weight distribution comes into it. I think that you know, in your question earlier about chainstay lengths and 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 balancing front and rear centers, I think that's an area that more and more people will start to really. You know, and I guess it's like Formula One, when you get to that upper level of of speed and capability, it becomes more and more about those little small marginal gains or whatever. Yeah. You know, and I think that's where Engineers will start to go now and really refine the smaller pieces of performance because because they are becoming more and more important. And I, I mean personally, I think the weight distribution side is quite a big. You know, it's it's quite a big importance to get that right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that should be an easy one for for engineers and designers to jump on. But yeah, in terms of geometry, I really don't. I think we are not. I don't like to say we're close to the end with it all, but I you know I think it's getting harder and harder to. You know, make bigger advancements. You know, I don't think head angles need to get any slacker. We've, we've tried that. We've been there. It's not necessarily for everybody. You, you know, you don't need to look too far past the top, you know, enduro world series riders to see what they're riding to realize that they're not all asking for slacker and slacker head angles because, you know, they, they, you reach a point again where it becomes, you know, diminishing returns. It's not, you know, there is a sweet spot of compromise. Um, but I think those bikes definitely being closer to what, you know the majority of customers ride uh, because you know you've got to do you've got you can ride all day on it it's capable of riding downhill tracks from not too many years ago and you know it's a fairly it has to be quite a versatile bike so i think you that potentially limits where you can go in terms of geometry i guess uh, if that makes sense but i think you know and i I do think it yeah it, it feeds into It feeds into the other aspects of cycling as well because of the development has been so, so rapid, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned how downhill bikes have kind of found that sweet spot and yeah, I mean, I've noticed too, the, the geometry just hasn't progressed a ton on that side, but it seems like enduro bikes are are getting closer to that, you know, like, like we're kind of getting up against that, especially when you look at head tube angles, they're, they're really not far off. Uh, between enduro and downhill at this point, do you see that? I mean, it, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean that, that downhill bikes are are something that we could actually just use for enduro, or is it the other way around that people can just ride their enduro bikes and and compete in downhill?
0: Well, I guess, you you know, it's been a couple of years since I've been at Whistler Bike Park, but, you know, that used to be, you know, the, the standard procedure used to be get your downhill bike, ride it for a couple of months, book your trip to Whistler, you take it there, you have a great time, you know, and, and, and then you come home again. Whereas now I would have thought, you know, the majority of the bikes on the trails at Whistler are enduro bikes because they're so, like you say, they're so close in capability to downhill bikes. Um, they're not the same, you know, otherwise the guys racing downhill World Cup, they would be on. You know, the bikes that the big companies want to sell, you know, they'd be on their enduro bikes and that isn't the case. Um, so there is obviously, you know, a huge performance gain in the downhill bikes, but obviously the compromise must be too big to, to say, well, why don't you just race your enduro on a, on a downhill bike? And I think from a design point of view, there are huge, you know, the fact that on an enduro bike, you have to be able to put a full length dropper post in there. You have to be able to do all these things. And on a downhill bike, that's less important. So that frees up on the CAD model to 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 tweak things for a downhill bike that you can't necessarily do you know you're trying to fit more standard parts on an enduro bike and that puts its own challenges in, in place I guess but yeah I mean and I think you know enduro bikes were were the first to, to play with wheel size and get up to 29 inch wheels and then we started to see that into downhill so that I think that aspect is definitely influencing downhill and that's where we've seen the more recent changes like you, I think you mentioned geometry hasn't really changed a whole lot in downhill for a long long time other than mm-hmm wheel sizes coming, you know, changing. And I think that was probably driven by well, first of all, driven by cross country guys who wanted 29 inch wheels years and years ago. And then driven by, you know, Enduro. But because, you know, the downhillers could see that all these guys were racing pretty much, you know, not far off the same speeds, in some cases, the same riders, you know, that were racing downhill and Enduro. And and they could see, well, hold on, if this is making my life easier to race on Enduro, well, why would it not make my life easier for racing downhill so i think i think the two do influence each other but yeah i think enduro definitely still got a way to go in terms of what's capable in terms of development i think
1: Mm -hmm. yeah well if you were gonna make your perfect bike today what material would you use i know there's a lot of debate about that is you know is carbon better than titanium or aluminum and and also how much travel would you want on your own bike design? yeah
0: uh, I'm not sure there's a perfect bike out there is there like you know what and I guess like you, you know you touched on earlier everybody's different so what might be important to me might not be important to you and vice versa. Uh, I think it's a that's that's a tough question you know materials ugh, you have like, but
1: you must have a preference. you must be like I'm a titanium guy or no I, I like carbon fiber because <laughs> it's you can do cooler stuff with it.
0: Yeah, I do. You know what? I I I I understand and appreciate a carbon bicycle frame, and I understand and appreciate an aluminium. But I, I think if my if I'm entirely honest, I would love. You know, my, if I could do it and if budget was no object, let's put it that way, I would probably design an aluminium frame. But I would, you know, if, it would budget would need to be no issue because I'd want to tool up for everything. You know, I would all need to be shaped. But, you know, purely from a longevity, you know, whenever I've I've not had many carbon frames in my lifetime. But when, you know, when I have done, I'm just so nervous about you know, the surroundings that you're going to use this product in, you know, it's, it's sharp stones, it's rocks, it's trees, it's all these things you're going to crash, you're going to damage, you know, and that, I guess, you know, carbon is really, really brilliant at a lot of things, but you know, when you don't have to go too far to watch a Formula One race on a Sunday afternoon and you see somebody, you know, contact and that's the wing gone. And that, you know, if, if that's, I think for competition at the elite, you know, most elite level, definitely you know carbon probably has a lot more benefits to it at that point but um from a purely functional basis which i guess i'm coming at less less so aesthetics but purely functional basis you know it feels like there's less benefit to be had with carbon but you know the guys standing in the bike shops trying to sell the bike you know they know that it's going to be easier to sell this bike that's you know made of carbon and it's painted with a fancy color scheme and it's got this spec, you know, there's more to talk about and that, you know, so there's, again, it's, I don't like to use the word compromise, but there's, you know, there's a lot more aspects to the whole industry of, manufacturing and selling bikes but you know back to your question i would i would have an aluminium bike but i would probably make it look like a carbon bike if that makes sense (laughs) (laughs) i can't tell you why i just that's just how i think but i am excited as well about the new technology like the 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 additive manufacturing side really excites me in terms of bike production and i think that opens up a hell of a lot of opportunities that haven't fully been explored yet um, and that that's that's an area that really interests me, um, and it's got you know it's got a long way to go, and I, I think that to me feels like you know what's this space that you're going to start to see companies really get behind that and create products and bikes that you've never seen, you know things that you couldn't yeah. you can't make in aluminium or you can't make in carbon because of the, just purely the process to to make them, and I think that's where we're going to see certainly not so much from a volume point of view because you can only you know you can only print so many bikes in a day but you know that that technology is is definitely exciting especially now that they can print all these different metal materials so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think my yeah if i didn't make an aluminium bike i would probably print something for myself yeah
1: a 3d printed (laughs) bike that that's going to be awesome
0: yeah with a couple of different shocks Yeah. yeah
1: cool well are there any uh bike frames or other products that you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about
0: yeah there's there's a project in the uh, that I've, I've been working on probably for seven or eight months now that hopefully we'll see the light of day in the next couple of months and it's um again it's it's a it's a, it's bike frame related but it's uh, the manufacturing method for that is very different to traditional methods again i can't really say too much about it but it's quite exciting and, and it's I guess it's popped up loads of challenges in terms of how we. How we've been working with the client to design the product because you can't just apply the same logic of well okay is it a carbon frame right it's made this way or is it an aluminium frame it's made this way you know this is this is kind of like a hybrid technology and you know you've got to manufacture it a certain way so that means you then have to design it a certain way and you then you know as much as it throws up challenges it throws up loads of opportunities too so that's been quite exciting to, to sort of like you talked about at the start problem solving you know trying to figure out well hold on how do we put cable guides in this thing if we're making it this way and how do we do all the, you know, that, that, yeah, it's, it's, I can only say so much, but when it does come out, you know, I think it'll, it'll maybe make sense at that stage. Is
1: that being driven by cost or, or is this more of a performance thing? If you can say,
0: I think it's, well, it's, it's being driven by a desire to manufacture something in a certain way, because it can be done in a certain place rather than following the traditional methods of, you know, boy starts bike company. Boy flies to Asia, finds a factory, <laughs> makes. Free. You know that it's yeah. it's it's basically saying, okay, if we don't do that, what what other ways can we do it? If that makes sense, and that so that's then that's then driven the the design process and driven the design brief. So, but you know, you're still you're still I, I say this a lot, but you're still trying to make a bike that fits the same set of hubs and wheels and fits the same forks and the same shocks from all these different manufacturers so you've got a you know there's a there's obviously quite a few um fitment points that you're constrained by but you know the spaces in between and the way you manufacture it well that's up for grabs so if you can find a new way to do that or, or do it differently well then then that's that's fair fair game i suppose
1: Mm-hmm. yeah well, are there any bikes or product designs that you've worked on in the past that you sort of now shake your head at and and say, "Wow, what were we thinking?"
0: <laughs> uh, nothing really jumps out. I think when I like like any engineer, you probably look back at something you did a couple of years ago and, and think, "Oh, I don't like that anymore, and I, I should have done that." But you know, you're you're constantly learning. So what you learned in the last year, two years, three years, obviously. You know, you could then apply that to a product you designed five years ago, and it would be far better. Um, so occasionally, I'll look back at previous projects that I've worked on or I've, I've delivered and think, "Oh, why did I choose to do that? Or why is that?" You know, but it doesn't make them wrong. It just they, they I guess they were right for the time or right for the ability that that, that I had at the time. But uh, there's nothing now. there's nothing that jumps out completely hideously and thinks. I did think it was odd we when I was at Newproof we designed a little sloop style frame and the athletes at the time they all wanted their shifter not on the handlebars so that they could do bar spins so we designed a little bracket that you could put a time trial shifter on the down tube and bolt it all in and now looking back i think Yeah, was, I can't believe we spent so much time on that, but I guess it's right. probably still still applicable maybe in some aspects.
1: Yeah, <laughs> was, that's what you get for listening too much to the athletes, I guess. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: Huh. Well are there like sort of dead ends that you've reached or, you know, kind of paths you went down and, and it didn't work out for whatever reason that kind of stand out?
0: More so with certain manufacturers, I guess. Some projects that I've worked on in the past with clients, you know, you go so far and they've been dead set on, no, I've got, I, I, you know, I already work with this manufacturer. I want to do the project with them. And, and you kind of go, OK, well, let's go down that path. And then all of a sudden it gets to the point where the project becomes you know, it, it hits a dead end, it hits a roadblock and, you know, either the factory is unwilling to budge on on whatever they need to budge on to help manufacture that particular product or they've just changed their mind and said, no, we're busy now. We don't need your business, you know, and, and that then requires the project to have a full step change. It might require a redesign or, you know, and, and that can often be a tricky Conversation with a client because they're you know they're saying right we want you to design this bike off you go and you know at some point you might hit the, one of these walls and then it's a case of well okay you know we've just burnt six months on a project we're gonna have to start again potentially or at least for a part of it so that those we have hit a few of those in the past but you know we've 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 so far we've always managed to to figure out a way around them and, and actually it, in most cases it's ended up being a blessing and we've ended up with a better end product you know either we find a better manufacturer or, or we've got a you know a, a clever solution to resolve the whatever the issue was at the start. So, yeah, it's not without its own challenges, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, as sort of a contract designer right now, do you get to ride a lot of prototypes, like early stage stuff, or or is it usually the brand that's doing that, or their their athletes?
0: Yeah, a bit of both, really. The um, I guess it depends how hard we push with the, with them, and there's you know there's money tied up as well in prototypes, and that's that's often
1: yeah it's got to be expensive
0: yeah and if you're working with a if you're working with a smaller client, you know it's it can sometimes be tricky for them to say, you know we're like we've got to order four or five prototypes of this first you know especially when you're when you're doing your prototyping in in Asia, which most smaller companies would do um it, it can be it can be tough, but certainly with the privateer guys, like I've been testing prototypes throughout the process and and especially when it comes to working on the shock tunes and that kind of stuff sometimes you know sometimes they'd rather do it themselves or you're working with a client they say no no we know what we want and you tear on and you know if that's their decision that's their decision but Mm -hmm. yeah i think i I do it is important for the people that are involved in the design project to get hands-on with the product and i have experience of this in the past where you know, even before Redburn Design, when, when I'd worked with other consultant companies and design agencies, and we maybe hadn't given them prototypes early enough, had got their feedback. And, you know, those those are all things that I guess I've learned from and, and try to apply today that, that it is, you know, the not so much the more opinions you can get, the better, because we all know what happens when you get lots of opinions. But, you know, sometimes, you know, just giving it to the right person can be invaluable, even if it's not, the feedback you wanted from them it allows them to at least understand oh actually i could shave some weight out of this part or i could tweak this part of the design that would make it better for the next bike or for this one you know there's all the you know the there's a lot of that that goes on so yeah getting your hands on a prototype is important because that's where you do your refinement that's where you see things for the first time in the flesh there's, you know there's no substitute for looking at a frame and holding a frame you know it doesn't look it's not the same on a cad screen everything just looks different that way so critical it is fairly critical to get hands-on and and if you can if you can spend some solid time riding the prototypes then that's even that's even better
1: yeah well i imagine in northern ireland you probably have some pretty good trails for testing prototypes what's sort of your go-to spot for that
0: I oh, I wouldn't say we're the R and D mecca of uh, of the bike world by any means. It's a fairly small island, but uh, I guess it's it's typical of of, a, of the UK. I guess like slightly smaller hills. You know we make it we make it count um, when we have to. There's a couple of spots that if I yeah if I've got a bike and I want to try and get familiar with it, I'll go to like a local forest near our house. Mm-hmm. Not because it's a great test track, but just because I go there all the time. It's familiar. You you know, you're not learning the terrain. You're learning. To feel the bike, so you get a you get an initial and and you know no bike feels good at that particular forest. I don't know what it is. Every single bike feels horrible there. So <laughs> I don't know if that's a good test or not but I'll I'll generally go and ride ride there. It's it's ten minutes from from my house. We actually moved to be closer to it just before Christmas, and uh, and then there are a couple of bigger mountains about an hour further south, right on the border between Northern and Southern Ireland, down in the in the mountains of Mourn. So there's a couple of good tracks down there that they have some events on there's a red bull have a fox hunt every year mm-hmm. uh, well they used to have it every year it actually hasn't been it hasn't been on uh, this year obviously but there's some good tracks where that event happens that uh, and it, there's a shuttle service and everything up there so yeah quite often you'll, w- when you've got a new product i'll try and go midweek and, and sneak out some some laps in there but you can it's easy to test a prototype here because there's no media you know there's not much of a scene here so right. i think that when i talk to other designers and engineers and product managers in the mainland of england and wales and scotland i think it's a bit harder for them sometimes to test a prototype because there's always some journalist on the trail who's having a sniff around to go oh, what's that here? so <laughs> over here you can just you could ride past anyone they'll look at it and go oh what's that no, they're more worried about getting a pint of guinness at the end of the day they don't care so much about
1: what bike yeah. you're on <laughs> yeah. yeah anonymity has has its advantages
0: has its benefits yeah yeah for sure
1: <laughs> very cool Well, Alistair, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. I really learned a ton and yeah, we're really stoked about the designs that you're working on.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, it was was good fun to talk.
1: Well, you can find out more information about Redburn Designs on the website, redburndesigns.com. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.